In certain neighborhoods of Philadelphia, it is hard to find someone whose life hasn't been touched by homicide. My experiences with murder mirror my larger experiences of violence. I've seen it and had people close to me who have lost loved ones to homicide, but I can't say I've lost a close friend or family member this way. As a kid, I spent a huge amount of time in church. It was one of the ways my mom tried to keep me safe. Between multiple services a week, Bible study, and choir rehearsals, it felt like I was always there. One evening when I was in middle school, a man crept into the sanctuary. He sat in the back of the muggy room, pretending to sing along to gospel songs with a gash pouring blood down his face. He'd been slashed and run into the church seeking safety. I don't remember what happened to the man, but I know that we church kids told that story over and over to one another, laughing throughout to mask the horror of that moment. There was an unspoken rhythm to the violence. There were always more shootings and murders over the summer. My mom said it was something about the heat itself that made people quick to anger. I felt safe in church, even as people were shot and killed on the block. Every so often, the church would organize us to march in the neighborhood, praying for peace. I remember walking around in the heat of the summer, praying aloud, feeling like my words were quelling the violence, feeling like I was making a difference. I went to more funerals as a kid than I could possibly remember. Some were almost joyful celebrations of life, especially when the deceased was elderly, had gone peacefully, and was saved, a born-again Christian. But I also went to a lot of funerals for people who were gone too soon, for people who were killed, for people whose mothers and grandmothers had prayed that they would find their way back into the church and its promise of safety. My single mom didn't always have childcare and thought the funerals wouldn't impact me too much. I was usually nestled in a corner somewhere while she supported mourners. The one funeral she didn't take me to was for a mother and a baby who had both died in childbirth. She said she thought it would be too sad, but it was hard to see so much death and grief regardless. I didn't know most of the people whose funerals we attended. They were usually family members and loved ones of people from church. I was 14 when my grandmother died of colon cancer. Of all the funerals I had been to, this one was the hardest, but I put on a brave face and viewed all of those other funerals as practice. When my cousins fell apart, their parents said that this was the first funeral they had been to. I had lost count. I was comforting adults, and it's only as an adult that I can even start to unpack the impact of all of that grief. I'm Chris Henderson of Amistad Law Project, and this is Move It Forward, a podcast about violence in America, about where we are and where we've been. From the personal to the political, we're exploring the impact on both those who have caused harm and those who have been harmed here in our city of Philadelphia. What have we done to address murders and shootings, and what actually reduces violence? In this episode, we're talking to people who have lost loved ones to homicide, about those experiences and what happened afterwards, both immediately and over a longer period of time. There's a lot of pain and grief that we're trying to hold space for. For every person who is murdered, there is a family, a friend group, a community who feel that loss. The numbers, over 500 people murdered in 2021 alone, can make it hard to think about the individual stories of those victims. Today, we're taking some time to sit with the realities of this loss. 
Now people had money. They could buy, you know, we went from little 22 one-shot rifles and, and little Saturday night specials to people having AK-47s and Uzis and Tech 9s. And it became a war zone. Like I literally saw one of my good friends that I grew up with all my life. I'm walking to school, junior high school in the morning and see this dude get cut in half with an AK-47. The trauma of witnessing that type of stuff was unbelievable. I think before I was like 15, I probably saw, you know, seven to eight people murdered. Saw a man like from here to, to this wall get shot in his head twice. And this ain't TV. You know, you see stuff on TV, but when that stuff happens, it's the whole etheric energy in the space ripples. And to witness that, like a man kind of release all of his body fluids. By the time I was 16, I had been to so many funerals that I was totally desensitized. And even to this day, I really don't go to funerals. Because it was just too much, you know, to take in. It was... You know, we, we laughed and joked about it as kids in order to deal with the, the trauma of it. But as an adult, man, I cry about it. You know, because people lost their life for nothing. For nothing, man. That's Akilah Shirelles sharing about his experience in South Central LA in the 1980s. Akilah was a member of the Crips. In the year 1989 alone, he lost 13 friends to the gang war. In 1992, he was part of forging the historic truce between the Crips and the Bloods in the neighborhood of Watts. Today, Akila is the executive director of the North Community Street Team. NCST is a community-based violence prevention organization that was founded in 2014, during a time when Nork was facing record high murder rates. Since the organization has been in Nork, the number of homicides there have been cut in half. Advocates like Akila have been working tirelessly for decades to fight for investments in mental health care, education, and violence prevention. But the push for real investments in violence prevention has been an uphill battle, filled with compromises and setbacks. Having lived through the realities of gun violence and homicide, Akilah understands the effectiveness of alternatives firsthand. Years into this new spike in homicides, most politicians seem committed to repeating history. Even as it's clear that these methods have not prevented the same crisis of the 80s and 90s from repeating itself today. And like, what do you think should happen after, after someone is killed? I feel like after someone is killed, I don't know. Everybody take it different. I don't know. I deal with depression. A lot of young kids do deal with the depression about their friends being dead and stuff like that. After someone's dead, you try to like leave it where it's at and let the rest. But how can you do that if you've been around somebody that you know all your life? Watch you grow up. You watch them grow up. You eat at the same table with them. How do you think people can heal on like an individual level? Therapy is something good that you fully gave me. So I feel like it should be therapy. A lot of us don't have therapy. So if you don't have no one to speak to or talk to, you just mad all the time. That's why we all dying, because we just mad. And I feel like that's fucked up, but we need therapy. Nobody give us therapy. It shouldn't be, oh, I'm going to give you therapy and you got to wait four or five months to see somebody. 
by tying in, I could kill someone or be dead or kill myself. So, yeah. And, like, how do you think we can heal, like, on, like, a collective level or, like, or like on a, on a community level? I feel like it should start with the older adults. Y'all should stop seeing, oh, that y'all should stop pinning us down. Y'all should help us more. You know how, like, they say we are the future? How could we be the future if the present already here and not helping us? We need y'all to help us become who we're going to be. So I feel like it's starting to older generation like the older people in the community stop calling the cops on us stop threatening us to do this or get off the corner or make us feel bad about the decisions we're doing because nine out of ten not everybody got a high school diploma or GED so if your old head is saying oh you sell this you make this big sell that and the money coming in good especially people that got young kids like young adults with babies, or not even babies, but, like, they got little siblings to take care of. So I feel like it started with the older adults. Kenzie is a part of Yeah Philly, a youth violence prevention project based in West Philadelphia. As a young person facing violence today, she is looking for the support of older people in her community. After talking to her, it's hard not to think about what her community has been through over the decades, about who has been murdered and who has been locked away as these neighborhoods have been fragmented by this crisis, which we can't seem to really address. Because there was a lot of friends I lost, and I lost, like, I think the worst time I lost, Brill, I lost Chucky. I lost them back to back, probably like two weeks apart, two or three weeks apart. And I just, it just, I realized something was wrong when I wasn't processing. I wasn't grieving no more. I'd just be like, dang, bro bro got killed. When my friend Chucky got killed, we call him Chucky because his face looked like the Chucky doll. He got cut when he was a kid, like a baby, and like his face had like all these scars, so we call him Chucky. When Chucky died, I just kept repeating it to my other friend. He was on a game, and we both were on a game. I stopped playing the game because I had saw it on my phone. I got the text message, and I just kept saying it over and over. I just kept saying it for about like two to three hours. Like, bro, Chucky died. Chucky. He just hit. I don't know if I just kept saying it because he wasn't responding to me or because it wasn't really registering. That's when I knew something was wrong because I wasn't processing it no more. I wasn't processing the death of my friends no more. Like, I wasn't grieving. How did you see your friends handle the grief? Uh, I seen my friends, like, like friends, like, Everybody experienced grief differently. I've seen people cry. I've seen people like snap, like they want to go do something about it. I've seen people like, like just fall into like this stupor, like, uh, like depressed stupor. I've seen people like just turn to like pills and drugs and stuff like that. So, like everybody had like different responses. Would Would you say of those like twenty three people? Um, that you lost, how many of of them would you say there was like some sort of trial um, for like their their like death, their murder? That's tough. I don't think none of them had a child to their murder. I don't think. I don't. Yeah, I don't think nobody ever like all of them. Like none of them like. 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. I wanna say none of them had trials today, bro. None of them did. William's experience reflects what is happening with most of Philadelphia's murders. According to the Philadelphia Police Department, there are 1,817 unsolved homicide cases here. Before 2021, there was only one other year in history that Philadelphia had seen 500 homicides, and that was in 1990. Last year, they hit 562. You might think that after someone is killed, the cops lock up the murderer in prison, but clearance rates, which are the percentage of cases that result in an arrest, are much lower than most people realize. And that's just an arrest, not necessarily a conviction. In Philly, the clearance rate for homicides hovers around 40%, and it's even lower for other crimes, such as assaults with a firearm. In 2020, the clearance rate for shootings was less than 20%. This means that we're spending almost $800 million on the Philadelphia Police Department budget when there isn't even an arrest in six out of 10 homicides. In the 80s, the clearance rate was about 80%. But even though the rate of arrests was twice as high, this doesn't mean that these crimes were being solved. Back then, many Philly cops were using unconstitutional and unethical practices to drive arrests. There is currently a list of police officers that the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office won't call to testify because they have been arrested or accused of misconduct. We can't keep throwing money at the police, hoping they'll save us. We have to do something different. You you talk about this lack of safety. What did that what did that look like? What do you what do you mean by that? Because you know, you would hear gunshots. And just coming in my building, you know, as a kid coming in with a book bag and going to school, I just felt like, you know, I felt like out of place in my own building now. There was people around me that were tough. They looked tough. They were older. You know, I just, it just didn't feel good. And then up two blocks from me one day, I remember when somebody was killed. You know, this was the first time I saw a dead body on the streets. I was actually only 12 at this time. Crack cocaine didn't even come yet. I think this was, uh, I was in the eighth grade. And I remember seeing this body laying on the sidewalk and people starting to crowd around. I remember the blood just happened because the blood was still running on the sidewalk. And then I remember somebody coming and putting a sheet over this person and me standing across the street looking frozen, never seeing a lifeless body before. And I remember seeing um, my neighbor coming down from the train station and, and, and seeing you know, breaking down crying because she thought it was her son because of the sneakers that was sticking out from under the, sh the streets. And I was standing next to her son. I said, look, your mom is over there crying. And he he's, he's looking at her like frozen too. And then I looked down and saw that he had the same sneaks on it with some red pumas. And I told him, I said, I think she thinks that's you. 
go over and so matter of fact he didn't go over somebody pointed and said your son is over there and so she ran across the street and hugged him and so on and so forth but later on when we watched the news that night I would learn what happened that that kid was going to the junior high school up the street called Lefferts and some other kids wanted his watch and he tried to run and they chased him and stabbed him in his neck and he ran for a while and fell right there It's important to note that the homicide rate, though not the number of homicides, is still down from the highs of the 80s and 90s. The homicide rate is measured as the number of homicides for a given population size. This matters because we look at 500 plus murders in a year, and it's this huge number, but we also have a much larger population now. So we have been pretty steadily increasing the police budget and putting more money into surveillance, forensic science, and personnel. But it's clear that this investment is not actually making us safer when the number of solved murders is so low. Well, you know, in a way, I was kind of um, sort of earlier mocking the idea that, like, you know, some of the great um, massive crimes of colonialism um, and capitalism haven't been lifted up or understood as part of the true crime genre. But I think that in a way that's a challenge for storytellers, right. And for journalists and, and podcasters or whatever your particular form of, of storytelling is, I think there's a challenge to try to bring those things, some of these larger types of violence and narrate it. Right. I mean, that's like, because I don't want to sort of get too abstract and theoretical, but you know, there have been uh, scholars and philosophers such as someone like Slavov Zizek, who, you know, some people some people feel weird ways about Zizek. But there's one idea that Zizek has talked about where he talks about the difference between subjective violence, which is the kind of violence done by one person that's easily recognizable and is generally what is, you know, in the content of most true crime stories versus objective violence, which is the kind of violence executed by institutions, executed by social and spatial arrangements, and those kinds of things. Clearly, there's literally no debate on the fact that it's the objective violence, the latter kind, executed by institution and social arrangements that harm far more people. Um, I was just looking at uh, Alec Karakatsanis talking about how you know, the people that die from tobacco, that just because of the tobacco industry, for example, you know, it is not considered crime, but, you know, far more people die from that than from all these other kinds of um, harms that are out here. We can see it with COVID right now, right? All these people dying from COVID, but it's not simply the presence of COVID. It's the way that people's life circumstances, unequal like circumstances, sort of enabled and assisted and were complicit with the spread of this and continue to be consistent with the spread of this uh, disease. So, uh, this, so it's like, you know, I think that that kind of violence we have to come to terms with. And I think we need to be more bold about really talking about what causes harm in our society. Right. Because what we've seen with police in the carceral state is that they are propped up by a false narrative of what causes harm in our society, that what causes harm is only these sort of individual acts and that this larger systemic violence is sort of not not something that can be on the table. Right. And systemic violence, which they also participate in. Right. Because, you know, in, in, in any city, some portion of the homicides, which are generally not counted, are committed actually by police. 
Now, this isn't to say that we don't take the kind of intra-community violence that we're seeing on the rise in Philadelphia um, as very serious. We, you know, we do have to take it very seriously. But I actually think talking about that systemic violence is part of understanding what gives rise to that interpersonal individual violence. So I think that this is a challenge in general for our, our understanding and way of understanding the world. Um, because I think what Zizek points out is that it's counterintuitive to think about this objective systemic violence, right? I mean, even for me, it's like when you hear like, you know, a thousand people died, it doesn't land the same way when someone's like one little girl died. It just lands different, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, at the same time, that's a thousand people. And so I, I, one way to look at that from the standpoint of media is that it's a challenge for us to narrate systemic violence in ways that lands with people and that inspires people to want to get to the roots of this harm and then change our conversation about public safety, right? What really is about public safety? I mean, that's definitely the COVID stuff should be, have changed the way we talk about security, you know? I mean, I think it, the, these so-called security companies shouldn't even be able to call themselves that anymore. Like, that's how aggressive I think we got to be. Like, you can't say you're in that business if you're not taking on public health concerns, if you're not taking on ecological concerns. You know, how can you say you're a, you're not you shouldn't any anything that has to do with public safety or security should be removed from your title if you're not taking those concerns head on. Right. And in fact, what we've actually seen is that many of the people who do have those titles have actually are actually oppositional and reactionary on those issues. So I think it's a challenge that we have to take up to understand what actually is the source of violence and harm in our society, and how can we get to the roots of that? Violence is a great divider, you know? Aside, aside from the cost, the obvious cost on human life and human potential and just how it robs us of, you know, beautiful human life and beautiful human potential. It robs us of geniuses, it robs us of, you know, spirits and brains and hearts that can actually take our society and our species to another level. You know what I'm saying? It robs us of that, right? In every child and every person that's lost, there's great potential to, to tran for, for, for transformation for our society and we, we rob ourselves of that. But it's also a great divider because when violence happened, Families on both sides split. Even if we're in the same community, now we're in different camps, you know? And it's in service of the state. It's in service of institutions that don't have our best interests at heart. For instance, you know, let's say in the city here, when a homicide happened or an act of violence happened, those who survive or those who lost their loved ones to violence they might champion harsher sentences and harsher laws, or they might join victims advocacy groups that do that because they might feel that that's the only way they can, can get justice or get safety. And on the flip side, those who lost their loved one to prison for violence, they might join a social justice advocacy group or an abolitionist group, right? And both groups, now, now there's two different camps that was once one neighborhoods or families in the same neighborhood now. Now we're divided. And meantime, the systems, the gun dealers, the mass human cagers, 
the legal systems, right, that have made gainful industries and gainful careers off of this violence and victimization narrative grinds forward, fueled by this division. So the change that we want to realize or the change that we're fighting for all of us, you know, environments that are more healthy and whole for all of us will never be fully realized if we're also licking self-inflicted wounds, you know, wounds that we inflicted on each other, on our own selves as community members. And, and if we're also looking at each other as if we're in different camps, abolition will never be possible. True transformation will never be possible if an entire segment of our community that we need to make it possible is seen as the opposition. That's why it's unsustainable. Violence is unsustainable. We're alienating our own base. It's hard to build power. It's hard to organize traumatized people. You know what I'm saying? You know this as an abolitionist, how hard it is. I mean, we keep working, but an essential part of the work now is to, is to bring our communities together and to do so we have to address the issue of violence. The reality for many neighborhoods across Philadelphia is that a single family will have members who have been murdered and members who have been locked up. They understand what the criminal justice system does and doesn't do. We don't need more punishment. We need healing. I mean, our outreach workers also do case management. So we mentor through a case management model. We do like a 90 to 120 day mentoring process. We have young people to lay out three goals, and this is 14 to 30 year old, three goals. And then we service them, making sure that they meet those goals. There's hardship, there's $200 hardship. We help folks get birth certificates, IDs, social security cards. We connect them with social services. If we need to get them pro bono legal services so they can deal with child support issues, we do all of those types of things as a part of that mentoring process to help folks kind of get through, right? That victim's advocacy piece becomes extremely important as well. We launched the city's first hospital-based violence intervention program. So we have three community health workers embedded in the hospital. So when someone gets shot and they go to the hospital, they'll meet Simi, they'll meet Najla, they'll meet Natasia bedside, you know, who know the folks in the neighborhood who will consent them to participate in the program, provide wraparound services for their healing, but then also connect with our high-risk interventionists in the field to be able to do that safety plan. Law enforcement is not always able to make an arrest after a shooting. You know, I can't remember what Newark's clearance rate is in the city, but I know it's pretty, it's pretty low. And so because there's a high threshold around arrest and prosecution, our high-risk intervention team needs to step in and mediate those conflicts and deal with the rumor control and deal with the retaliation stuff before it gets out of hand. We're not always able to stop the first shot. In case in point, you know, Raheem is laying in the bed shot. But we can damn intervene in that second and that third one through the connection and the relationship. And so victims' advocacy becomes really important in that because one of the things that we discovered when we first launched the work in the city, that 90% of black folks who were applying for victims' comp who were harmed were being denied for this thing that they called contributing behavior. So if Raheem is hustling on the street and somebody drive by and shoot him, they would say, oh, that's Raheem, he's a drug dealer. Victim suspect, the police would put on the police report that would go to the prosecutor's office and he would be automatically denied victim's comp or victim services. Meaning that 
They would deny them resources to bury him. Families can't even afford to die in this community. And then you get denied victims' comp. So, or all of the support service and maintenance service. See, most people know victims' comp for burial. But they don't know that it pays for lost wages, that it pays for therapeutic services, both second and tertiary, like for the kids of the person who got shot. You know, it replaces things that were stolen, windows that were broken. It pays for all of those types of things. So being disqualified from receiving that was horrific. And we did a national report on it. The Alliance for Safety and Justice, one of our partner organizations, and discovered that less than 20% of folks in community even knew that Victims Comp exists. And so our victims advocate are the folks who hook up with people and be like, hey, you know that you're qualified for all of this stuff? And we're going to fill out your application. We're going to walk it through the process. We're going to go to the prosecutor's office for you. If they deny your services for some contributing behavior thing, we're going to hook up with Rich Pompelio, who runs the Victims' Rights Law Center. We're going to sue the state and get your money so we can get you healed and get you the support that you need. And so we became that kind of vanguard, in a sense, on behalf of folks in the community who couldn't advocate for themselves, you know? And then we launched something called the Public Safety Roundtable. So this is a piece that rounds out this three-pronged strategy. So twice a month, we host something called the Public Safety Roundtable, which is a public, public safety policy forum in which residents organized it to hold elected officials, law enforcement, community-based organizations that get money, like NCST for public safety, faith-based organizations, accountable for services that they're providing in the neighborhood. And so one of our first big victories was going to our public safety director, Anthony Ambrose at the time, and saying, we need your shooting team and your detectives to stop putting victim suspect on these applications because you're denying these people services. Whether he is a victim or where he is a perpetrator or a suspect, a perpetrator or a, or a victim, we're like, don't deny people services, healing services, you know? If you think about it, the increased access to guns without regulation is just part of the same story of escalation, just on a national scale. And it's gone hand in hand with the massive expansion of policing and incarceration. Even on a world stage, you know, I saw what this country was doing. Kind of like where we go back to what you were saying about if you have the gun, you know, if I had the gun in one hand, why the gun is more important, would be more important to me than having the money. Because, you know, if you have the money but no gun, anybody could take the money from you. I was able to see how that dynamic was playing out on a governmental level. People and countries that had wealth or that had resources or had things that were good for their people, but they might not have had the capacity to defend themselves. I was able to see how this country and other superpowers, like say Russia or UK or the European countries, was able to just go and, and take stuff from them. You know what I'm saying? And so I don't know what part that might have played in my own thinking of like, this is you know the way to go. I don't know if I had that analysis at the time, but definitely later on, I was able to see how my perceptions, my world perceptions was kind of like validated and legitimated by the way the systems of power did things. Even though I might not have articulated that way in the streets, we got a sense real early from watching systems of power and how they dealt with us and how they dealt with poor people, how we, the best way to operate is in a way of, of dominance through force and so on and so forth. We have to keep imagining and reimagining what is possible 
and creating the world that we want. EF Philly is paving the way forward by approaching violence prevention holistically, recognizing that we might not be able to rely on our current system to create new models. What do you think the city could do to reduce or prevent violence? I think the city can start investing in the communities that have the highest rates of violence and not with money that has all these strings attached. We have so many conversations with city officials about what is needed over years, not even recently, but how many town halls and testimonies do people have to give and hearings and all of these things. And we're still not doing what people are telling you that they need and still not doing what people are saying that they want. And so I believe that it is really structural racism. It's all of these things that are embedded into the fabrics of everything that we do. Look at who runs the city, right? What do they look like? What are their thought processes? I'm pretty sure if anything happened to their kid, if any of their kids were in these schools where all these things are happening, they wouldn't even be in these schools because they don't go to these schools. And I think that is the biggest thing. They're not investing in the people who look like me. And that's a problem. How do you, or how do you try to like process that loss? I think about him like every time I open my phone, he right there. So it's just like, it's like, dang, bro. Like, I really wish that you would have just stayed in the house or like you would, somebody would have been with you at the time. So it wouldn't have went that far or like you wouldn't have got to that, got to that point. All because y'all got in a fight and you ain't win. So you thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my gun and get that revenge back. And I feel like that's wrong. And, but I feel like no matter what, he in a better place. Like, he not hurting no more. He not suffering. He looking down on his family, us. And, you know, he still did his thing, still got his diploma. So I'm proud of him. He just turned, I want to say 20. I want to say September, like. September 16th or somewhere around there, but he just turned 20. Like he died since September 20th? He died December the 5th or the 6th. I remember that day because I was on house arrest. And I talked to him like a couple days before that. And he was telling me how he was going to come see me because, you know, he was going to come down west. And I'm like, all right, we're going to do that. We can hang out, chill, you know, whatever, whatever. After that, you know, we'll talk on the phone regularly. And then once that day hit, my I feel like a part of me was just just gone. What do you think should happen to to the person or the people that killed him? I feel like you should do your time. And that's why I feel like with everybody, like, no matter... Even though you go through stuff, we understand, like, we understand that y'all, everybody go through stuff nowadays. You feel me? So it's just like some people take it different ways. Some people handle it different ways. And I feel like once you do your time, you should get the help that you need. But some people don't like, some people don't want that help. So 
they could get help, you know, ther they go therapy, you know, get down to like the real bottom, like what's really going on in y'all hood. Like what's really what's really to talk about, like what's really why y'all mad and y'all taking it out up upon, you know, gun violence. How do you think that like we as a society, as a community, as individuals, uh, can stop like retaliatory violence? Man, at this point, I feel like, like me personally coming from like my opinion, I feel like it's like it's too late. Y'all came too late. Y'all try. Y'all trying too late. Like once, even if like it's not really a lot of people dying, y'all still should like have some there for like stuff like this. Y'all wait until like all these people start dying left to right, right to left, left to right, left to right. Now y'all want to come to a conclusion like, oh yeah, well, this is happening. So I feel like we should start doing this now. Why Why should it be that way? It should be like that from the start. It wasn't like this, I want to say 2019, 2018. It just started again like this. And you know how many die within three to four years? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people that could be grown right now that's missing out on their life. Young kids that didn't miss their birthdays because of that. It don't make no sense. I feel like, I don't know, Obama need to come back. Because everybody getting like, I heard that they take on, like presidents take on, you know, the stuff from the last president. I feel like Donald wasn't really doing his thing. Like you wasn't really trying to help us. You was just trying to like get the benefit for you. I forgot his name, our president now, but I don't know what you doing. I don't know what you doing either. What you doing? Just sitting in the chair, typing paperwork or whatever you want to call it. I feel like it's too late to try to, you know, help the bad community. But, you know, it's never. Hold on, I'm going to scratch that. I want to say that no matter what, you could always still try. Don't never give up because it might be a good outcome, but you never know. So all you could do is just pray, pray to God, Allah, whoever you look up to, to like make it better. Can you imagine being in Will's position and personally knowing 23 people who were murdered? Even losing one person can be a life-shattering event. What is the impact on an individual and on communities where there aren't even arrests after most murders? How can you have faith in the police, in the criminal justice system, in the government, when they can't even respond effectively to the most serious forms of violence? There has been a lot of blame placed on black and brown communities for low clearance and high crime rates. If only we talked to the cops, trusted the cops, if only we didn't protest and call for defunding the police, then they would keep us safe. Some people have even argued that police departments across the country were defunded, and that's why gun violence is so prevalent in places like Philadelphia. The reality is that the police were not defunded in Philly, and arguably weren't defunded anywhere. Hundreds of thousands of people across the country took to the streets to protest the murder of George Floyd Jr. in the summer of 2020, and we are still struggling to enact policies that affirm that Black Lives Matter. At the same time, people are seeing police departments take more and more resources, while schools and other social services suffer. 
we can't police our way to safety. It won't work, and we can't afford it. We need holistic programs that can interrupt cycles of violence and help people heal. So many young people in Philadelphia are navigating multiple traumas, losing friends, being victimized, in addition to all of the regular upsets of teenage life. We know how to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, but so few Philadelphians who really need this care are receiving it. Abolition is not a silver bullet or a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to reduce the police budget so that we can resource many other programs and systems for our communities. We need, in the words of Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, life-affirming institutions.